Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. I kind of like you whistling at the beginning. Really? Uh, yeah, last week's. Hang on. Is that a COVID sneeze? No, it's a hay fever sneeze. There was a theory that when microphones are on, you don't sneeze. Well, <laughs> can I just, uh, well that, that, that laboratory get... tested that, didn't it? Well, so what is that sneeze then? Is that it's hay fever? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm absolutely positive. Do I need it's to, hay fever. Because we're in a, there's there's us two and there's no, no, no. Lily on cameras. Yes. She's in the corner. She's no, kind of safe. I have tested negative. Neg- you know, I am absolutely. When did you test negative? This morning. Do you think that still works? Are you still negative? Maybe you got something on the way up. Or maybe it's hay fever and I should have taken my Pyriton for it. Okay. I'm just slightly... Are you nervous, Lily? She said no. I mean, very meekly, but she said she's not. <laughs> but then she's hiding behind oh, the I camera. Gave, I gave her a scowl, which was... Uh, no, I'm perfectly fine. I just... Sorry, that was literally just a hay fever sneeze. Do you not get hay fever? I used to. And then... And, and what solved it for you? Age. Pre- I think you just... It just <laughs> as you get older, you just tend to... I used to have... Um, doctor's notes, I had all kinds of things, just streaming all the way through the exam season, streaming, 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 all the way through. That's streaming just, in the old sense of the word. I just want the um, the general public to hear this, okay? These were the texts that I received from you yes. on my birthday, okay? Yeah. Right. So, oh, yeah, happy birthday, by the way. Yeah, right, okay? So here we go. Having a clear out of DVDs. Yes. What do you do with old BAFTA discs? Sounds I like guess you'd keep joke. them, but I want to get rid. So I said, you cut them in half. You went, and then chuck them, said, righty-o. Yes. And then several hours later, yes. oh, sorry, meant to say happy birthday. I didn't that. Yeah, that's not actually what it said. Sorry, meant to say happy birthday. That's okay. So what's wrong with that? Be- because you, what happened was you were texting me about the most unbelievably... I got a text from you. I thought, oh, Simon's texting me to say happy birthday. You were literally texting me. You know, there's a worse example of that. My dad once rang me on my birthday and asked me something to do about the train set. I feel as though this is a therapy session. Where people who've forgotten your birthday, and I'm now in the aftermath of the fact your dad forgot your birthday once. It's not that, well, you are, quite literally speaking, in the aftermath of it. But you texted me on my birthday about yeah. something that wasn't 
happy birthday. Well, and then I'd forgotten it was your birthday. Then I remembered, and then I sent you a text. Is there a, a problem there? No, it's fine, Simon. No, it's fine. Shall I scroll back to September the twenty-first and see if you sent me a text? Go ahead. Oh, I can't be bothered. I'm, I'm sure you'll find that I did. It'll take me way, way too long. Yeah, you have to scroll through all the texts of all the people that text you to wish you happy birthday. I had a nice day. Thanks for asking. Oh, I did ask, but I obviously didn't ask at the right time. So you have to. Is this like the April Fool? You have to. You have to do it before midday. Yes. Is that, is that kind of yes? It? Okay. That's exactly what it is. Is this kind of well known in your house that you know this is a bad thing if you forget Mark's birthday? Well, nobody in I my house has is. forgotten I my birthday. It, I think because they know. Dave Norris and Julie sent me a lovely bottle of Japanese whiskey. Right. You want to stay next week? I got a text of you last night. I was sitting at home in Narnia, right, yes. last night, yeah. and I was watching Ozark. And it was one of those episodes of, of Ozark when suddenly Darlene, out of nowhere, randomly kills somebody, which she just... Damn it, Darlene! And I get a text from you going, shall I lock the door? Are you coming? Yeah, that was the third text that actually was saying, are you coming? (laughs) I'm sorry. That that was uh, because I I happened not to have come into London. If I come into London now, I am in detail, although I'm trying not to overstay my welcome. Well, anyway... I feel like I have overstayed already. It now. We've only we're only four minutes in okay. on, on my on my time. On your here. time, okay. And you've already outstayed your welcome. Thank you. Before we start, here's one from Matt Etheridge on Twitter. Lovely to hear Ted Kravitz showing he's a member of the Kermode and Mayo Wittertakement family during final practice three on Sky's Formula One coverage of the British Grand Prix. Here we go. Well, I spotted a nice little scene. You know how Simon, if you're watching the beginning of our program, Simon Leslie is talking about how uh, Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves are in here and there are various films in the pipeline uh, yes. about Formula One. Um, well, we have a little film recce going on. The director of uh, Top Gun Maverick, Top Gun Maverick, uh, is uh, Joseph <laughs> and he is having a little tour of the pit wall. That's very good. Excellent. Thing is, but from an editorial point of view, I'd have had a word there because that makes no sense in the context of Sky's Formula One coverage. Why did you say Top Gun Maverick? Why did you do that? <laughs> makes no sense. But anyway, we appreciate that. Thank you, Matt, for sending that in. It's like a meme. Anyway, coming up on the programme today, a whole bunch of interesting things. For example, Mark, what are you doing? I'm going to review Brian and Charles, Thor, Love and Thunder, Futura and Blackbird. Which brings us to our special guest. Yes, he's Taron Edgerton. Plus, we'll run through the box office top ten. And if that wasn't enough... On Monday, there'll be another take two in which we'll be expanding your viewing and our feature One Frame Back, which gives you some further watching related to one of the week's releases. In this case, it's robot films in the context of Brian and Charles' Right Up Your Street. It is. It, robot films is something I could talk about for a very long time, but I know I'll get stopped. And in Take It or Leave It, you decide your word of mouth on a podcast feature. Mark will be taking a look at The Boys on Amazon Prime. Send your suggestions for great streaming stuff that we might have missed to correspondence at kermanamaya.com. And let's face it, there is so much stuff that everybody has to miss because there's so much great drama out exactly. there that this word of mouth thing is very, very useful. So sign up, extra takes on Apple Podcasts to dig into all the tip-top stuff to make you sound clever in front of your friends. Or if you prefer a different platform, head to extratakes.com. Ed Freshwater, you remember uh, yes. Ed? Yes. Yes, hello, Ed. Um, How lovely to hear from you. Stinky pants and so on. Um Obviously, loving the new show, Mark and I had cause to humph uh, when you said, this is a quote from you, Mark, Mm -hmm. what you don't know about sport wouldn't fill the back of a postage stamp. What I don't know about sport. Surely what you do know 
wouldn't yes, fill Yes, yes, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. I sh- sh- or did. what you don't know would, would fill something far larger. Or what you didn't know, you don't know... Ed, you're quite right. I ...wouldn't li- fill an unspecified area. Yes, I, what I meant was what I know about sport yes. wouldn't fill the back of a postage stamp. So I, I'm sorry, that was just me having a brain fart. Ed says, you used to be quite pedantic about these things. Used to be? But now have outsourced it to your <laughs> listeners. Anyway, I loved hearing the Minions Rise of Gru review. I laughed so hard I nearly fell off my bike while out training for our fundraising bicycle ride through Wales in August. Can you plug the Team Kip efforts to make life better for kids around the world? All the stuff is at teamkip.co.uk and team and Kip both have capital letters. It's a year since we lost our dear Kip, but we can let you know that there's a new member of the church in Newborn Nook, Little Arlo, was born oh. a few weeks ago to the sound of who knows where the time goes. So he entered the world saying hello to Fairport Convention. Couldn't be more on brand. Much love, stinky pants and down with the Nazis, Ed Freshwater. Isn't that great news? Well. So welcome, Arlo. Uh, Ed, thanks very much indeed. Uh, Sandy Denny, isn't it? Who does the it is, yeah. Um, by the way, an interesting thing, just before we get to Brian and Charles, from Child 2 this week, something happened that has never happened before. Go on. So she says, I'm going to go and see Elvis. So, so, fine. so she's going with a housemate to go Fantastic. and see Elvis. Okay. She then rings, having just got out of the cinema, and said how completely brilliant it was. Fabulous. Okay. Charles, who is very smart. Really, really, really loved it. And then she said, I think I'm going to go and see it again. And I said, oh, OK, fine. Anyway, about two hours later, she calls. She said, I'm just going to the cinema again. Fantastic. So she was Fantastic. <laughs> so... That has never, ever happened before, that, that a film affected her so much. I mean, I think, here's the thing, she didn't really know much about Elvis, and there's a whole, let's face it, there's a whole generation, a couple of generations, for whom all of that 50s and 60s stuff is like ancient history. Why would they know about it? That's brilliant. So, but that was the impact of the film. That is fantastic. And we'll get to some more... Very good. Thank you. We'll get to some <laughs> uh, more Elvis correspondence uh, later. Anyway, Brian and Charles sounds like it's the, the least robotic title for a movie <laughs> of all time. Well, it's also the least robotic movie. So it's a touchingly absurdist uh, comedy drama from David Earl and Chris Hayward, who wrote it and also star in it. And it's about an eccentric inventor and this ramshackle robot. So David Earl is Brian. He lives in a remote cottage in uh, the Welsh Valleys where he spends his time knocking out madcap inventions. Here is a clip from very early on in Brian and Charles. My infamous inventions pantry. It's actually a cow shed. Pinecone bag. It's basically just a plain bag with pine cones glued onto it. Ping pong, picky pong, ping pong pie. This is basically a puzzle. I came up with and tried to sell to Selfridges. A knife, eggs, green rope. It's literally just a belt that you can put eggs in. It's an egg belt. Anyone want any butter? So turn it on, it'll suck the air out of the helmet. See how, gla- how dirty his glasses were? Absolutely filthy. <laughs> it was largely a visual clip again. We are doing that quite a lot. So anyway, that's him in his, in his infamous inventions pantry. And he also makes things, he makes a flying cuckoo clock so that anybody in the village wants to know the time, they can just look up and go, oh, look, there's Brian with his clock. And he invents trawler nets for shoes. Anyway, one day he goes, he sees some fly tipping and he discovers a fly tipped mannequin head. 
And the next thing is he gets a washing machine, drags the washing machine and the mannequin head into his workshop and comes out with a robot. Robot that is named Charles and then adopts the surname Charles Petrescu. And uh, he says, hello, I'm Charles Petrescu and I am your friend. It's a name that he's seen, therefore the, the robot likes it. And Brian immediately thinks, okay, well, we should probably keep Charles a secret because the locals may not react entirely well. So they spend their days playing darts, uh, dancing, cooking cabbages, riding bikes, having pillow fights. There's this kind of montage of them having a great time together to the turtles happy together. Great song. And then uh, Charles watches a television series about uh, travel and he wants to go to Honolulu. And then, so there's a, it's, it's all very idyllic, and then adolescence dawns and Charles starts to behave like a slightly stroppy teenager and becomes more and more difficult and Brian then has to become more and more parental. Now, the point is, Charles is a mannequin's head with a big boxy washing machine body wearing a shirt and two arms coming out. It just looks absolutely chaotically all over the place. So the first thing that the film manages to do is it actually manages to make you believe in Charles as a sentient being with this kind of slightly Max Hedrumy glitchy voice. Hello, I'm Charles Petrescu. But you do buy into it as being him, as being a, a him, the fact that it's it's a him. Second thing is this began life as a radio internet show and then a stand-up act, which then gave birth to a short film, which was 2017. Short film was very well received. This is then turned into a feature. In the short film, there's not a huge amount of jeopardy. It's just the two of them together. And then at one point they fall out and Brian takes Charles off to live under a tree and then he is reunited with him. And that's the end of it. In the case of this, because it's a feature, they have to up the ante. So there is... um, a local bully and bonfire builder called uh, Eddie, whose family terrorised the neighbourhood. And then there's Hazel, played by Louise Brealey, who is um, uh, a, a, a woman who lives in the village. She lives with a domineering mother and a parrot. And she's clearly sort of the, she's clear kindred spirit to Brian. But it's Charles who says, you know, you should ask her to go for a walk by the lake. And here's the thing. It sounds like it shouldn't work at all. But it really does, and it works for a number of reasons. The first one is that there is something very, very charming about the DIY comedy, about this ridiculous-looking robot that you come to believe in as a sentient thing. The way that it moves, I mean, people don't don't concentrate enough on how much physical comedy is really complicated and a, a very sort of clo- it looks a bit like you know in Wallace and Gromit the wrong trousers you know the whole thing about the, the trousers are completely oversized mm-hmm. well there is something of that about the way in which Charles's body is configured also there's something very uncynical about the film because it's about loneliness and it's about it's about being on your own and it's kind of about having an imaginary friend who then becomes a real friend. And if you compare this to, you know, there's lots of films about AI companionship. I mean, particularly recently, because, of course, AI companionship has now become a real thing in the real world. People, particularly for the elderly, and, you know, this is kind of being outsourced to artificial intelligence. 
But there is something really charming about that idea of somebody who's very lonely, who's got a very, very creative mind, with a bit of a madcap mind, but it's kind of desperate for companionship. And that companionship then manifests itself. In, I mean, he's like Caractacus Potts, you know, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He's always sort of making these kind of weird inventions. They don't quite work, but they kind of work, like the hair-cutting machine that he goes off to the fairground that everyone forgets about, me old bamboo being in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So there's that, but there's also the... There's the charm of the slapstick comedy. The slapstick comedy being the the spectre of Charles walking around talking with this, I said, this slightly Max Headroom voice. And then the whole thing has got this kind of cinematic grandeur that it's in this remote cottage, which is out among the valleys and the hills, which kind of gives it a, you know, there's some kind of essentialist charm to it. What, what's essentialist? Well, I'm, not, I'm probably using the word wrongly. It feels like there's something quite primal about it. I mean, on one level, it's like an archetypal story about somebody being lonely in a world in which they are completely alone and therefore they... they I mean, it's the Frankenstein myth, isn't it? It's the... You know, in the same way that Victor Frankenstein gets a whole bunch of mis mismatched body parts, puts them together, breathes life into them, and then he's terrified by what he's done and immediately sends his creation off into the world. That's Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein, <laughs> Froderick. <laughs> yes, that's right. Frau Blucher. You take the blonde, I'll take the one in the square. <laughs> so it is a version of that story, which is a, you know, which is a very familiar story, but it's done, I thought it was done really well. I thought it was really touching and really funny. The, the relationship between Brian and Hazel is beautifully observed. But this, I mean, the figure of Charles has that kind of childlike loneliness that I associate with silent running and then developing into adolescence. And also, I mean, you can read more into it. You can, you, you, you could see it as an analogy for, I mean, I think anyone who's had a, an older relative who has, um, who has been affected by Alzheimer's, will also see echoes. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a personal thing. You 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 take from movies what you bring to them, and I obviously I bring that to to movies quite a lot now. But I just thought it was very funny and very touching and very charming and very DIY and very very homegrown in a way that kind of I mean, weirdly, it had me thinking of Withnell and I. Although it's totally very different, but it did have me thinking of Withnell and I. That same kind of way. If you thought this film couldn't have been made anywhere else, anyway, it's. I thought it was really lovely. It's called Brian and Charles, and it's in cinemas. Uh, still to come uh, on this particular take, Mark. Uh, I'll be reviewing Thor: Love and Thunder, Futura, and Blackbird. All that plus the laughter lift and my chat with Taryn Edgerton after this. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed 
delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed dot com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. Such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th, as women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's Mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. This is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Uh, welcome back. Just a, a final thought on Brian and Charles. Hmm. Is there any, which I haven't seen, yeah. is there any hint of, because you were saying it's a little bit reminded you of Withnail and I, yeah. is there any essence of Frank Sidebottom in there? Just the way you were talking about it reminded, just made me Oddly, I ha- think. Oddly, I hadn't made that connection. I mean, there's a touch of Ricky Gervais and that's because there is a connection between you know, one of the key uh, key creators who has worked with Ricky Gervais on a series of things. I hadn't made the Frank Sidebottom connection, but just a tone, I suppose. No, no, yeah, yes. 
Maybe it's just a tonal reference to your review rather than actually the content of the film. Here's the, here's the connection. They're both very odd films that I like and have a similar, slightly tragicomic tone to them. So, yes. So, okay. yes. Thank you. So, the box office top 10. Yes. Uh, number 42, Tigers. Yeah, which I liked very much. Okay, that's fine. Um, oh, sorry, should I say anything else? I thought you were about to read an email. but No, no, no the, okay. the email is about Nitram. So let me say very quickly. So Tigers, which is a story, it's a true story, um, about a teenage Swedish footballer who is signed up to a club in Italy, and he goes there and he suffers mental health problems, and the industry is completely geared to worrying about whether his body is in perfect shape, but absolutely pays no attention to his mental health at all. And I don't know anything about football. We already discussed this. What mm-hmm. I know about football wouldn't fill back postage stamp but I thought it was a very very well told story about mental health issues and as I said based on a on a true memoir uh, number 10 in the UK not Nitrum. in the chart in America is Nitram yeah. now this is an extraordinary email okay. I think and um, again makes me feel reassured about uh, our extraordinary listeners yeah. CB is how it's signed so CB thank you for this gents he says long time lurker first time emailer for obvious reasons I wanted to thank Mark for reviewing Nitram this week. Okay. Just as Jacinda Ardern would not use the name of the Christchurch shooter and Justin Kurzel chose to reverse his protagonist's name, I will take the same approach out of respect for the dead and their families and not use the, the name of the man who massacred 35 people in Tasmania. Actually, before I read the rest, can you ju- just give us a, a, a reminder about Nitram? The story is of uh, a young man who's known as Nitram, which is a, a nickname given it's a reversal of, a, of, of his actual name. And it is basically the story about how his life becomes more and more out of control. He is clearly suffering from emotional and mental health problems. He finds himself increasingly isolated with access to money. And then at a crucial moment in the drama, he walks into a gun shop and buys an armory of weapons and what I thought the film was about and I think this is what the, the the writer thought as well was the insanity of how easy it is to act for people to access weapons uh, which turn what would be a personal problem into a national international tragedy so CB continues thank you so that's sort of in case you missed it last week that's kind of where the where the movie is Tasmania says CB is a small place so it's hard to have lived there in the 90s and not have some connection to the horror that occurred I have the incredibly dubious claim to fame of having met Nitram on a number of occasions I funded my university days waitressing in the only five-star hotel in Hobart at the time. Nitram was a regular at the restaurant along with Helen Harvey, the millionaire heiress he befriended and who picked up the tab for their meals. Nitram's behaviour and conversation was socially inept and often completely inappropriate. He made us all uncomfortable. Some of my colleagues would beg the maitre d' not to put him in their section. Even in those brief interactions, I could see that the man was disturbed. So how anyone could genuinely look him in the eye and sell him semi-automatic weapons and ammunition is beyond me. Like Mark, I found the single most chilling and sickening scene in the film is where Nitram makes his deadly purchase so easily. This email is, so it feels so particularly timely based on what's happened in the last yeah. few days. 
My ex-boyfriend's father was a counsellor for the Tasmanian police force at the time of the Port Arthur massacre, so I heard about the trauma it caused those poor families first on scene. Many of them undoubtedly still carry the mental scars 26 years later, so I can understand why so many locals didn't want the film made and can only assume that they haven't seen it, so they did not appreciate the filmmaker's intent and message. This is not a sensationalised, exploitative film. It is a considered and cautionary tale. We must not shy away from these horrors but remind ourselves how they happened in an effort to ensure they never happen again. My father headed up the team of legislative draftspeople who captured the new gun control laws immediately after the massacre. I remember the long nights he worked and appreciating how important his work was. I'm so proud of him and glad we had a government who responded so swiftly and firmly. So the stats at the end of the film which indicate the watering down and deterioration of these laws over the years Mm -hmm. made me so sad and angry. As we watch more gun-fueled atrocities unfold in the US, it makes me wish that Nitram could be compulsory viewing there. Every country has thousands of Nitrams. The only difference is whether we enable them or not. And then CB signs off, up with love and kindness, down with lax gun control laws. And I thought, that's such an extraordinary email and right to the heart of someone whose family was involved intimately in this story. Yeah, I mean, I have almost nothing to add to that other than thank you for saying that as eloquently as you have done. And and I absolutely agree that what the film is about, and I said this when I reviewed it, is the most horrifying scene is when the young man at the centre of the film walks into a gun shop and is sold weapons. Uh, Number nine in the UK, number 14 in America, everything everywhere all at once the, the, you know the little movie that can and the the multiverse movie that shows marvel you know you, this is what you should really be doing uh number 8 you got the right pronunciation of this last week is it uh, i think it's jog jog geo which Jog-Jog-Geo. is tra- translates as long live and prosper it's a indian hindi language uh, family comedy drama i haven't seen it if anyone has please let us know uh, number seven here, nothing in America, not charted in America. Uh, good luck to you, Leo Grant. Has it opened in America? Well, if it hasn't, that's why it's not charted. <laughs> that, would, that would probably be it, because I don't think they count piracy. Um, I think it's fun. I, I like it. I, I think the performances are great. I love Emma Thompson. I think it's doing lots of things that are interesting. My only reservation is that it felt stagey, and it, it does feel like performances. But I've spoken to a number of people who've been to see it and have really enjoyed it, and particularly um, found that it it deals with uh, subjects that could be awkwardly dealt with in the cinema, but with great humour and great, uh, you know, great joie de vivre. And number five in America, number six in the UK, The Black Phone. Which I was really impressed by. I mean, it's based on uh, a short story by Joe Hill, who, of course, is you know, genetically connected to Stephen King, but I thought the film itself has connections to things like Stranger Things. I think Scott Derrickson does a good job of telling the story in a way which is dramatically engaging and visualising things that are happening in people's heads or maybe they're not happening in people's heads, maybe they're happening in their dreams, maybe they're happening in reality. And uh, it's got a couple of really creepy moments in it. I liked it. Lightyear is at number five. The more I think about it, the more I dislike Lightyear. Uh, Number four in America, number four in the UK, Jurassic World Dominion. Notable largely for Jeff Goldblum's strange delivery, which always is exciting. But other than that, it is a series of set pieces that you have seen before, bolted together to create 
the illusion of entertainment for, for a certain amount of time with some shonky CG. Although another film that we're going to talk about coming up later on this show puts the shonky CG of Jurassic World Dominion in the shade. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, number three. Top uh, Gun Maverick. Nothing on that. Okay. <laughs> now, Elvis Presley to be discussed with the Elvis movie, box office number two, in the UK, number three in America. Already established that Child 2 has seen it twice already. Which is fantastic. So, Simon, the allotmenteer, nurse and runner in Leon C. Weirdly, the films that come to mind while watching Elvis were the documentaries about Amy Winehouse, Annette and Senna. As if Capaldi would take about. In those films, I found myself willing them to make a different decision. Don't yeah. go with those people. Don't get in that car, even though I know they did, and the cons- consequences. In this movie, I wanted Elvis to choose how to make his music and dress how he wanted, but Parker won. A lot of great music was lost, and Elvis died young and lonely, says Simon. Um, Raheem from Oxford, heritage listener, first-time writer. I went to see Elvis on the weekend, and I now want to be Elvis. Fair enough. I saw the film with my sister. We both knew little about the king before entering the cinema. Like many people of our generation, our image of Elvis came via the later Las Vegas years and the impersonators. I thought the film did an amazing job of taking us back to the period of the 1950s, and I now feel I understand why Elvis made such an impact and became the icon that he did. We have both been sharing, enjoying, and singing Elvis's music in the days since. But my question is about the more disturbing themes of the film, which have been less discussed on the show until now. Just before the Hall of Mirrors and Ferris wheel scene, there is a moment when the colonel is considering Elvis and the word geek flashes on the screen. I don't remember this. Yeah. Is Baz Luhrmann saying that Tom Parker turned Elvis into a geek? I'd like to hear what the good professor thinks about this. No, can, can I... Can dar- I th- well, let me finish the paragraph. The darker themes of the film and disturbing parallels with Nightmare Alley. In your interview with Tom Hanks and your review, you said you didn't think that the colonel was a completely sinister character, but we all saw a villain who exploited Elvis in the worst possible way. Yeah, so on the subject of that, uh, I think the implication is that Parker sees Elvis and sees him as a, another circus act that he can exploit. He does come out of the piece as a villain, but what Hanks does is play him as... People often say this, in order to play that kind of character, you have to find a way of liking them. The person who's mm. acting them has to find a way of, of finding a way in, and that's what they do. Can I just read you this? This is a text from Sanjeev Bhaskar yes, yes. of this parish, who had been in touch with me after I had reviewed it to say that you know he'd, he'd been ill and he hadn't been able to go, but... So he sent me this text. Saw the Baz film last night. I thought it was sensational. The best embodiment of Elvis on screen. Sorry, Sanjeev, if you object to me reading this out a bit late to say that now. Austin Butler managed to hear every movement marked a quite startling degree, especially on the performance sequences that I know so well. The clever mixing of him and real Elvis, um, I ended up believing more than the straight performance. It was treating that and an always unapologetic, heightened Baz Luhrmann film. Elvis was never played like a caricature, which is almost always to a degree the case. Um, the casting of people I've met is brilliant. The Colonel seems to waver between Peter Laurie, Andy Kaufman's Lacker from Taxi, and uh, Hanks's performance in The Lady Killers. Wow. But it was, you know, I thought... It, the, now, listen... I'm an Elvis boy and I know my Elvis. I bow down in front of Sanjeev's knowledge of it. If Sanjeev says it's good, it's good. 
And if child two went twice, twice. you've got the whole market. It's, it's completely a, across corn. the board. That's Number fantastic. one is Minions, the rise of Gru. So I just laughed all the way through when the Minions were on screen. And every minute that the Minions weren't on screen, I was just like, OK, I don't care about the other stuff. I don't care about the plot. Just bring me the Minions back. And I have been going ever since I've been going, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. I don't get that. It's, it's a sequence when the thing about breaking the planks with the head and go, bonk, bonk, bonk. And the other one goes, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And then picks Kevin up and goes, bang, 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 bang. Nick says, <laughs> I'm writing to apologise profusely to anyone who attended the 515 screening of Minions 2 on its opening day at The View in North Finchley. My very own child one was among the so-called gentle minions whose dignified appearance, suit, tie and shades masked entirely undignified behaviour. I was informed that this involved every code violation imaginable, including liberal throwing of bananas and popcorn at the screen and at fellow patrons. Needless to say, I was appalled. There can be no greater crime than to know the church's commandments, as the boy most certainly does, only to break them willfully and consciously. He may have been one of many, but that most certainly does not absolve him of individual responsibility. No cinema goer should have to endure such terrible screening conditions, particularly not young kids who might be going to the pictures for the first time. I'd be grateful for any suggestions for suitable penance. He has already been banned from further cinema outings with his mates and has been subjected to a screening of Fritz Fritz Lang's Fury to learn about the dangers of the mob mentality. As the sins of the son are not to be laid on the father, I would be grateful for anonymity. Although I had just said a first name, I think that's probably okay. But his name, and then you've given me his name. So I'm not even going to mention his name just in case. But anyway, so this this is interesting because Mm. everyone listening will have seen and been maybe slightly puzzled as to this, uh, these shots of very smartly dressed, usual teenage boys going into a cinema and then some cinemas actually banning uh, them from going. And from what our correspondent here is saying is that his son... So, Because I, I was thinking, what is this all about? Yeah. But clearly the throwing well, there, of bananas and the throwing of popcorn um, at all times during the movie. So that's what it's about and that's why they're banned. Yeah, I mean... I- I don't, I mean, look, I'm old and I don't understand this uh, and I, I can't pretend to have a solution to it. But seriously, if you go to a Minions movie and you throw things and you misbehave and you mess up, what is a family film and what will have young young viewers, some of whom might actually be genuinely scared by your antics, some of whom might be encouraged to think, oh, this is how we behave uh, in the cinema. Don't, don't. I mean, Minions is really funny and sweet and and innocent slapstick. Don't make it about you. It's not about you. It's about minions being funny. Correspondence at CoburnAmeo.com. Our guest this week is a British actor and singer who made his name in 2014's action comedy Kingsman The Secret Service. He's appeared in Testament of Youth alongside Tom Hardy and Tom Hardy in Legend. He starred as Eddie the Eagle Edwards in the 2016 biographical film. He voiced Johnny, a mountain gorilla, in the 2016 animated musical film Sing. And of course, of course, he starred as Sir Elton John in Rocketman. Now he's playing the lead in Apple TV Plus's Blackbird alongside Paul Walter Hauser and the late Ray Liotta. You can hear my chat with Taron Edgerton after this clip. You okay? Did your mother come visit you yet? She's still pissed. I got Tim mixed up in that thing a while back. Well, your brother's got to walk. I'm not. I talked to some of the guys. They said the prosecutor, Beaumont, he's trying to prove something with you. Prove what? 
that he's not part of the machine. I'm not part of the machine. I was. My family. Your mother's family. Tell me there's a way out of this. Not a quick one. You'll get five years. Five? Four with good behavior. The low end of the sentencing guidelines is if you take the plea, you get two years. They're not going to give you two years. And that's a clip from Blackbird. It's a new TV show from Apple TV+. Plus. One of its stars is Taron Egerton. I'm delighted to say that Taron joins us. Hello, Taron. How are you, sir? Uh, hi, good morning. Nice to see you, Simon. Very nice to talk to you. I hope your phone is on silent because as we're recording this, the Prime Minister has just resigned. So you'll get lots of messages from news organisations and uh, uh, and friends. But anyway, just checking, you can hear us okay? Yeah, I can. I am dimly concerned that <laughs> the notifications on my device are going to go crazy. But let's see how we go. Yes. Well, let's concentrate on Blackbird, which is this extraordinary new TV series from Apple TV Plus, how would you how would you describe it? Psychological thriller is that the neat way of talking about it? I suppose, yeah. Um, in a kind of you know, in a in a neat little box with a ribbon on, I suppose you'd call it a psychological thriller, true crime drama. But um, yeah, I, I don't really know. I think what Dennis did with the writing is is quite well. I, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with the script, which is why I did it. But I do think he does something a little bit different with the true crime genre. It's he you know, has a very specific angle on the story he's telling, which is based on fact. Yeah, it's hard. It's sort of hard to describe. So the Dennis you're talking about is Dennis Lehane, who is you know, a best-selling mm. writer, of course, Shutter Island and Mystic River, amongst many others. He was like, I think what is called now the showrunner. It's basically his gig, this this whole series. Yeah, absolutely. He kind of has final say on on pretty much everything. The concept, which is, as I say, is based on fact, was taken to him. And I think in, initially he was he was reluctant and, and didn't really know what his angle was. The story is, in a nutshell, about two, two prisoners. I play a guy named James Keane who received a 10-year sentence for dealing large quantities of cocaine in the possession of firearms. A few months into his sentence, the FBI offered him the opportunity to transfer to a maximum security prison and befriend a, a, a serial killer who, or a suspected serial killer, who was threatening to get out on a technicality on appeal. And that, that really happened. Uh, so that's the basic premise of the show. What Dennis saw in it is the opportunity to tell a story about two actually rather ugly characters on uh, different places on the spectrum of toxic masculinity. One, one who's kind of beyond redemption and one, and one who's not. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. that's kind of the basic premise and, of it. And Jimmy Keane, he's the one that is within shot of some kind of redemption. And the man who isn't is Larry Hall, played by the extraordinary Paul Walter Hauser. Can you explain what it's like acting with Paul? Because he puts in another extraordinary performance. Paul was was always my f favourite for the role. I had the privilege of being involved in some of the conversations about who would play that role. And Paul was always my favourite. I'd seen Richard Jewell. And what I loved about him in that was that he was able to be both very, very active as the protagonist of the story, but has this incredible quality of being very passive throughout it. And um, I felt that was something that was very, very important for the, for the part of Larry, because although he is, you know, I suppose if you wanted to draw this archetypes, he would be, you'd call him the antagonist, but there's, there's more to it than that. Then he has this sort of extraordinary quality of, 
manipulation and kind of affected innocence. And I just loved Paul as an actor and thankfully he wanted to do it. And I think his performance is quite uh, extraordinary, actually. Being opposite it is unnerving because to see an actor so unashamedly and bravely grab the bull by the horns, as it were, of playing someone who says and has supposedly or possibly done terrible things it's you know unnerving to sit across from, but um, he is amazing in the show, I think. Certainly in the first few episodes, we end up thinking, hang on, am I just thinking he's guilty because he's weird? And we have learned to be very mistrustful of that kind of reaction, but that's what your show is making us feel. And maybe, and that's what the cops are thinking as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the the setup of the show is you you can't really trust what this guy says he in in real life he had confessed to crimes that he hadn't committed and you get the impression that he also has this quality of narcissism where he quite enjoys the attention to yeah why is your character jimmy keen why is he chosen as the prisoner to go and and befriend larry hall in real life he was a, a kind of possessed of a fairly extraordinary skill set He's a very, very, very sort of charming, charismatic guy, but was also a, a high school athlete who also had some martial arts training. His ability to to be in any kind of social situation and thrive, I think, that initially drew them to him. But it was also a very dangerous situation, and I think they also felt they, being the FBI, the FBI representatives who approached him, that he'd be able to defend himself should things turn ugly. Did you get to meet him? Yes, he actually cameos in the final episode of the show and he's a producer on the show too, so he is involved, yeah. Right, okay, I'm going to go go back and watch the final episode so see if I see if I can spot him, yeah. <laughs> see if you can spot him, yeah. The, the show takes you into some pretty dark places. Does that affect you at all or are they just words and it's a scene and you're just being completely professional? I think more than anything, I, I think had you asked me about anything else I would I have done, I would brush off any idea of kind of not being able to shake off the scenes of the day. That's just me personally. I know some actors feel differently, but I I don't, I've never felt that thing where, you know, I've forgotten who I am or I can't, you know, I I can't reconnect with myself. But I think just by virtue of the subject matter, when you are spending your days in a prison in New Orleans, talking about the the worst things imaginable yeah it it definitely doesn't put you in a great frame of mind also as well i think there are certain you know there are certain parts of playing my character there are a couple of moments of quite quite extraordinary violence that aren't particularly nice to do and definitely leave you feeling a bit like when you're a kid and you get in a scrap and you just feel horrible and hollow afterwards it feels a bit like that i think i've said on the program before, sometimes I feel very uncomfortable when it's another serial killer or about a serial killer or someone who might be a serial killer and those the people who are killed are girls and, and women, as is traditionally the case. But I think what works with Blackbird is the fact you're telling the story in a completely different way because it is a, because it is a prison drama and you're trying to get the story out of the person who probably did it, maybe he didn't do it. It's just a, just a whole different angle. Well, well, what appealed to me about it was that although it's a show essentially about exactly as you say toxic masculinity and this incredibly ugly side of maleness when i read it i felt it was completely without glamour glory or sentiment and actually what it was doing was exploring yeah i don't know that it presents a definitive answer but it it explores why men 
make terrible decisions that have awful consequences in the world. And, you know, that sounds quite grand, but it is what appealed to me about it. And I think, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy has to strike up this relationship with Larry, who is, you know, pretty beyond redemption. And what, but what Jimmy, you know, all of his skills, his charm and his charisma, they don't, they're not enough. And actually what he has to do is what, what that relationship forces him to do is to be introspective and to look at himself and to reflect on his own behaviors and something about that process uh, kind of breaks him really um, without saying too much. He sort of dances with the devil and doesn't quite come back. I think. There would appear to be some physical training for you, Taron. Here you look pretty ripped in this show. Yeah. So the real guy was in good shape, but for me, as much as, you know, there's always a, an appealing challenge in doing something like that, I, I particularly threw myself into it this time because I felt it had a direct, it was sort of directly connected to the guy and who he was. When you meet him, he's this kind of swaggering, almost thuggish narcissist who begins a journey through this encounter and through this mission. And I felt that his physique, there's something of his alpha male quality and his narcissism really, that, that felt to me, it just felt like I should be in very good shape for it. And Ray Liotta plays your father in what I imagine is his last role because he passed away in May. What was that like working opposite him? Presumably, you, was, he, was he unwell while you were filming? Could you tell that? No, no, not no. I mean, the character he portrays is in Ailing Health. Um, and I, Ray was somebody who, certainly when I worked with him, kind of maintained the quality of energy of what his character was experiencing. I wouldn't describe him as method. He wasn't sort of unapproachable or sensational about it. And so, yeah, so he, although he wasn't in poor health that I could tell at the time, his character was, it's a strange feeling because I now, I now don't want to commodify my relationship with Ray to sell our show because it did have, he did have a profound effect on me. And um, and I do feel actually that I've watched it and I do feel it's some of the work I'm most proud of. But I'm hesitant to sort of speak it up too much because it sort of feels in bad taste. It was extraordinary working with him. And I do think he's absolutely amazing in the show. I'm very proud to have worked with him. You were saying earlier that you were involved in the discussions as to who might play Larry Hall because your credit is credited as an executive producer. How did that come about and what powers did that give you? It didn't really give me powers. I mean, you know, as, as, a, as a lead actor in something, you're always afforded the freedom. To, well, I it might, you know, afforded the freedom to to comment on, on different elements of the creative process. I suppose being a producer made me feel a little more validated when doing that. It's not all of us, you know, it would be remiss to sort of give the impression that all of a sudden I'm, you know, doing anything other than my job, which is to, you know, be the central character. But I, But I was, it did mean that I was, more involved with general creative conversations that didn't just pertain to what I was doing with my performance. And I enjoyed it very, very much, but it came about simply because I read the script. I thought it was a, an extraordinary piece of work and I, I felt greedy, really. I wanted to be as close to the kind of creative nucleus of it as I could be. All the way through this, the series, Taryn, in the way you look and the way you hold yourself, it's reminding me of somebody and I couldn't think who it was. And right, right at the end, I got it. Have you, I imagine you've seen Terminator 2. <laughs> well robert patrick who plays the t1000 yeah you look like him well do you know what i i love that because i think that's the character that i'm playing 
I think that's how he wants the world to see him. I think those references are the references that would have appealed to him. And I think he does have that view of himself as being this kind of, having this suit of armour and being invulnerable and being impervious. And the show is about those layers being stripped away and him being exposed for what he is, which is, you know, like everybody else, a little boy underneath it all. Matthew Vaughan, who's directed you many times, has said that you and Hugh Jackman basically are the only people who can be big action heroes and musical stars. And, I, and of course, you've worked, you've worked together. That's pretty good company, don't you think? Yeah, it's lovely company. I mean, I don't know if it's true. I mean, what Hugh does is... Um, is what Hugh does and, you know, he's in the big leagues and he's lighting up Broadway as we speak. I certainly, you know, I'm drawn to to a bit of song and dance, but um, at a far more amateurish level, I'd say. <laughs> and are you the new Wolverine? That's the talk. No, it was, a, it was, a, it was an unfortunate thing that I did. I did an interview um, and it's happened to me so many times. I've been asked about it so many times over the years and my answer is always, you know, if the opportunity came along, I'd be really interested in it. What a great thrill that would be. And I did have a general meeting at Marvel about three or four years ago, but those two sound bites were have been unfortunately spun into a story that is just untrue. So I think beyond this interview, I'm going to decline to com- I'm going to decline to comment on those things because every time I do it, it spirals out of control. I will never. I, I guarantee I will never ask you that question again, Taryn. But, <laughs> uh, but thank you so much uh, for talking to us. Uh, Blackbird is new on Apple TV Plus. Taryn Edgerton, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, Taryn Edgerton speaking to me a couple of days ago. Do you enjoy that interview, Mark? Well. I have no idea, Simon, because because of the way this show has been done, we're recording this on Wednesday, yes. and you spoke to Taron on Thursday. Yeah, so I don't know what I thought so about my you don't know. How was he? Well, I don't Did know. Did he mention me? I, I, I Did imagine, my name come up? No, I imagine he, he was great. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to now talk about the show, yes. having not heard what he just said about yes. it. So forgive me if I contradict But him. let's just say what a great interview What a great interview, because he will yes. be, won't he? Blackbird premieres uh, on the 8th, uh, Friday, and that's the first two episodes go up and then the rest are weekly, based on an autobiographical novel, In With the Devil, A Fallen Hero, A Serial Killer and A Dangerous Bargain for Redemption by James Keane, which I had not read and I imagine you hadn't either. No, but it's quite... That information is there and it's in the title sequence and actually is quite revealing. It is. Developed by Dennis Lahane. Lahane or Lahane? Lahane. I think it's Lahane. Lahane, um, who's the writer behind Mystic River, Shutter Island, Gone Baby Gone. Taron Edgerton, who stars as James Keane, um, also produces. He's a drug dealer. He uh, gets himself into a 10-year stretch after having done a deal that goes wrong. Rayleigh Otter is his ex-cop father who is ill and tells him that he might not make 10 years. So... When James is approached in his prison by the FBI to transfer to a hellish facility where they want him to befriend a convicted serial killer to find out where the bodies are buried, he takes the deal because it's a horrible place to go to, but he needs to get out fast because otherwise he he thinks he might not see his father on the outside. Paul Walter Hauser, the great Paul Walter Hauser, um, is uh, is the convict who has confessed to serial killings, but he's also suspected of being a serial confessor rather than a serial killer, somebody who just obsessively confesses to crimes or fantasises about crimes that they didn't actually commit. And in another thread, we see Greg Kinnear as the cop who brings him to justice, in inverted commas, or at least thinks he does, because at the point that we meet this story, there is doubt over the confessions that got him convicted and an appeal pending that could put him back outside. So 
The setup is essentially, therefore, that Taron Edgerton's character has to inveigle his way into the confidence of Paul Walter Hauser's character and find out where the bodies are buried in the understanding that they might actually not be because we, the audience, don't know exactly what happened or whether or not the character is a fantasist or whether the character is a killer. And now I've seen the first three episodes. Um, I think you've seen all six. Yeah. It makes for very gripping drama. I mean, they the two central characters don't meet until episode three. And so there's a terrific job before that of building the backstory towards putting them finally in the same room together where the conversations then have to start happening about, you know, exactly what's going on. You know, is Paul Walterhouse's character a, a fantasist? Is he somebody who just has absolutely grotesque dreams? Is he somebody who believes that he's done things that he hasn't done? Or is he actually very cleverly covering his tracks by confessing to things that he did do, but in a way that makes him appear that he is a serial confessor, even though he's behind bars, but he has a he has an appeal coming up. I thought Edgerton's terrific. I think he's a really talented actor. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I loved him in Rocket Man, but the physical transformation that he undergoes for this is enormous. It's not just that he's incredibly ripped and bulked up, but the way in which he walks, the cockiness of his character and the way in which he walks, it's essentially a prison drama. Um, and it is worth saying that certainly all of I've seen, and I've, I think you've seen the whole of the series now, it is it is all to do with what happens basically inside. You know, the, the we, it's not a film which is revisiting crime scenes and really no. grisly. Crimes. I mean, I mean and, and worth just underlining that point because, as I've said before, I don't like serial killer stuff, particularly when they seem to ex enjoy uh, the killings of uh, women. And if you're yeah. going to tell a story like this, if you tell it from inside the prison and trying to work out what the story is, that seems to be a much more. Uh, edifying way of telling us. Absolutely. Paul Walter Hauser, who we interviewed on Kermit and May's Home Entertainment Service during lockdown, is terrific. We've seen him playing fantasists before. You think mm. of him in I, Tonya, in which he's the guy who thinks that he's a special... There's that, you know, the interview, you're special, he's I'm funny. a special option. But you're not. I am, but you're not. We've also seen him play uh, characters who are wrongly convicted. Think of um, Richard Jewell, in which he is accused of a crime which he didn't commit, because he seems weird, because he seems strange, because he seems like a misfit. He's somebody who just looks like they fit the profile. And I think what he does here is he does a brilliant job of leaving us genuinely uncertain as to what's real and what isn't. He has a, it's hard to describe this, he has a real talent for talking whilst appearing to be looking off into the distance and seeing something that we're not seeing. You know, he has a he has a way of externalizing the idea of imagining something. You look at his face and you can see him, you can see the inner workings of his mind or his character's mind, which is a real talent. I don't know how he does it, but it's a real talent. I knew nothing of the story before I went in. Um, I hadn't heard of it at all. And I think uh, that's probably the best way to go into it. Very well uh, written and well played. And I thought it was fairly discreet with the with the areas that you just talked about. Ray Liotta is very moving as his father and the third episode is dedicated to... Yes, at the end it says dedicated to... the memory of yeah. Ray Liotta. And it is a very moving performance, this kind of fragile character who's 
whose desperation, I mean, there is a terrible, you know, there's, he, get, he makes a mistake quite early on and you can see he's racked with guilt about the mistake that he's made because he suddenly realises that he's done something. that And is, he's playing a man at the end of his life as well. Precisely. Yeah. So that's Blackbird and it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's the ads in a minute, Mark, but first it's time once again to step into our laughter lift. Oh, Lord. First floor, telephones, gents ready-made suits, shirts, socks, ties, hats, underwear and shoes going up. Hey, Mark, I've got a Donald Trump joke for you. Oh, good. Why did Donald Trump smash so many plates against the wall? I don't know. He wanted to seem tough on China. Hey, that's but, good. Mark, that's let's, good. Is let's, that an original? Well let, done. Let's not well be too done. hard on the former guy. We all lose our rag from time to time, don't we? For example, the good lady ceramicist Erin Dawes got really annoyed with me this week. I kept interrupting her on Tuesday, which was a very warm day. She was doing some admin on her ceramics website. Very good, by the way. You wouldn't believe it, Mark. She threw her keyboard against the wall and the parts flew everywhere. That's when the shift really hit the fan. <laughs> I said... <laughs> I said, calm down... Calm down, the good lady ceramicist here indoors. You should learn to embrace your mistakes. She then gave me a hug, so it was all, hey! it was, it was all fine in the end. What's still to come, Mark? Uh, I don't know because I'm not on the right bit of script. It's page 11. Page 11. Again. Uh, the magic falling away. You read it out for me. Okay. I'll be reviewing Futura and the big releases of the week, including Thor, Love and Thunder, which I really, really loved. We'll be back. I didn't say ad lib. I just said read it. We'll be back after this. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker. And this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. And welcome back. By the way, uh, again, apologies for the lack of Christian Bale on last week's program because yes. he because he because he bailed. Well, exactly. That was the thing. I should in the little announcement. I should have said so the bad Chris, news is Christian, Christian bailed. bailed, and that was that was the, the. Let's let's pretend that it's last week. So Simon, yeah, who's our guest? Well, I'm very sorry to announce that Christian bailed. <laughs> Banging the table still is not a good thing. No, it's fine. It's traditional. Before before the next reviews, an anonymous email. Okay. 
titled Motion Smoothing. I've just watched the first episode of Stranger Things with my lovely pregnant wife and her parents after a very long and stressful week of work. Escape artist cats, building work, building work, <laughs> building work, and hopeless kitchen people and whatnot. <laughs> the combination of chippy tea and Stranger Things on a Friday night with the family was the carrot dangling at the end of my week. Yeah. A big, juicy carrot. A big, juicy carrot that would take me out of my grind for a couple of hours. But no. And at this point, I thought he was going to say, did the last episode have to be two and a half hours long (laughs) and the penultimate episode an hour and a half long? And why is that whole Russian sequence of the story there? Because it's utterly nonsense. You heard the thing about Stranger Things, how much more strange can it be? Yes. Anyway, it's not about that at all. Anonymous continues, Samsung had cast a spell over my father-in-law, a wonderful chap and a purveyor of fine judgment in everything from cars to drills and everything else. But for optimum viewing settings for home TV enjoyment, it seems Vecna, who is the main bad character in Stranger Things, had transmogrified into a TV salesman one day and held him in a trance-like state while pin-sharp pictures of hummingbirds feeding or melting butter or European football danced across his eyes and ended in his wallet hovering out of his pocket with no Kate Bush in sight (laughs) to bring it back to earth. Kate Bush being the uh, much-repeated musical reference in Stranger Things. Did you hear, can I just say, there was a thing on Radcliffe and McConey when Stuart McConey said... Did you know that uh, running up that hill uh, got to number one because of Stranger Things? Yes! Everyone in the world knows. Stop talking about it. The TV is incredible for nature documentaries. The TV is not incredible for retro 80s horror dramas. I did not engage with it properly for one second. So please, a Commodian rant about motion smoothing for me and for no other reason than to make me feel better. I'll make sure not to listen to future episodes of your podcast while my father-in-law helps me paint our new walls. He's a very good bloke like that. Take the Tonk if we're sti- still saying that, and if not, great work not changing in a world of constant blooming change. Anyway, so just explain why our anonymous correspondent is in such a bait. Yes, well, I mean, I have to say I've never experienced it. Um, my telly doesn't do it, but motion smoothing is it's a frame interpolation thing. And a frame what? It puts Okay, so when you're tr- when you're converting the frame rate of films to television, it's to do with the conversion thing. Uh, basically what your television does is it takes two frames and it imagines what would be between them and it somehow recreates an interpolated frame in order to smooth the motion. And everyone says it looks terrible and don't just take my word from it. You know, people like Tom Cruise have all said, find out how to turn it off on your television and turn it off. And the advice is very simple. Just go go to the internet, mm-hmm. put in the make of your television and turn off motion smoothing and do it because it is a stupid idea. As I said, I've never suffered from it because why the hell would I? But people who are properly good filmmakers and film directors are against it. Correspondent at KermanAmeo.com if you'd like to uh, get involved with that. What else is out? What else should we be looking at? So Futura, which is a documentary co-directed by three directors, uh, Pietro Marcello, um, Francesca Munzi, and Alicia Rovacha, who made um, Happy As That's Right, which I really loved. They set out in 2019 to speak to young Italians about how they envisage their future, You know what their hopes are, their dreams are, how they feel about Italy, how they feel about the world what plans they are, how they feel about who they are now, who they have been, who they wish to be. 
it almost accidentally, because of when they started filming, also then became a film about the pandemic because suddenly the people that they're speaking to are trapped within lockdown and the pandemic changes the world. And so it's a very interesting document, almost accidental document, of how a generation felt about what had happened as a result of the pandemic and how you know outlooks have changed as a result of it. Some of the answers are about professions. You know, a lot of the boys want to be footballers. A lot of the uh, young women have plans to become beauticians. Um, some of them are political, a feeling that politicians don't care or understand about young people. Some of them are to do with national identity. Some people say, oh, you know, this is the best place in the world to grow up. Others say, I can't do anything here. I need to move away. There's a lot of stuff about class, about people from different backgrounds having different aspirations. So on the one hand, you hear... Um, stuff about you know developing skills um, and uh, you know working with the land or you know uh, learning cosmetic skills. On the other hand, you've got people literally discussing abstract philosophy because it's what they happen to have been studying at the same time. So it cuts right across social boundaries, and it deals with social media. You know, some good, some bad stuff to do with family. One of the things that's very touching about it is more than one. A young man says that what they want to do is to find financial stability for the mothers who have sacrificed so much for them. That actually occurs more than once. It's not a very coherent picture. It's obviously sort of, you know, scattershot. And, you know, even when I was just doing that kind of... um, that rundown of it, I can hear people going, well, you know, there's stereotypical when I say, you know, boys going towards football young women going towards being beauticians that's what those are the answers that are given that's you know that's just what actually happens to come up in the film there are a couple of piercing moments of insight and one of them is this one of the interview when the interviewees says and almost casually they're talking about what their parents generation did things that they were kind of crazy and that they were wild and they were rebellious and you know, maybe that was great, maybe it wasn't, but they were frightened of some things and, you know, fear was a good thing. And one of the men says, but fear isn't what it used to be. Fear nowadays has become anxiety. And it was like one of those thunderbolt moments when you go amidst this morass of voices saying things, a lot of which seem inconsequential, some of which seem scattershot, some of which seem suddenly there is this boom moment of I thought that's one of the most profound things I've heard recently. Fear isn't what it used to be. Fear nowadays has become anxiety. And in the midst of everything that's going on, I thought that was really profound. And the movie is? Futura and it's in cinemas. A quick bit of what's on uh, now. This is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. Uh, you email yours to correspondents at kerbertandmayo.com. This week, we start with Conrad. Hi, Simon and Mark. Conrad here from Movie Oubliette to encourage everyone to check out Iconicon this weekend, an online convention featuring many film-related panels, including me celebrating the 30th anniversary of Candyman, talking with director Bernard Rose and actor Tony Todd. Visit iconicononline.com or search for Iconicon on Facebook to find out more. Thanks. Hi, Simon and Mark. This is Mark Cosgrove, cinema curator at Watershed in Bristol. What connects David Lynch, Greta Garbo and Taiwanese action movie The Swordsman of All Swordsmen? And the answer is Cinema Rediscovered Festival, of course, which takes place in Bristol, 20th to the 24th of July. Go to watershed.co.uk for more information. See you in the cinema. 
So that was Conrad from Iconicon and Mark from Cinema. The great Mark Cosgrove. Rediscovered. I like the way he paused to let us answer the question he which he just uh, sent us. Mark, Mark is a very good friend and the, the Watershed is a beautiful cinema. And uh, yeah, that's how lovely to how lovely that he, that he sent that in. Also, how lovely to hear about the, the uh, anniversary screening of Candyman. That sounds great. Yes. 20 second audio clips, please. I mean, if it's 30, it's fine, really. It's fine. Uh, send it to correspondence at kerbinandmayo.com. A couple of weeks up front, that'd be very nice, and we'll boost your numbers if we can. So that, I think, we're virtually done, apart from Thor. Thor, love and thunder. And it is Thor 4. <laughs> it is Thor 4. It's the fourth <laughs> Thor. So Thor, love and thunder. You said I'm Thor. I said wear a saddle, Philly. That's the one. Tom Hiddleston. So this is the sequel to Thor Ragnarok, once again directed by Taika Waititi, who co-wrote the script with Jennifer Caton Robinson. It opens with a scene of Christian Bailed. Christian Bailed, him. Gore losing his daughter in the desert, then finding himself in what appears to be an outtake from the flowerpot men, or in the night garden, in which he falls out with his god and declares, this is my vow, all gods will die. Therefore he becomes... The God Butcher. Called the God Butcher, which, the God to be butcher. honest, if you were offered that as a role, you go, yep, okay, yep, that I'll sounds good. That. We then cut to Korg, uh, humorously retelling Thor's story so far. You know, lots of sort of silly literate in-jokes about it. he lost his brother again and, and then again. And then enjoying a classic Thor adventure in which he accidentally destroys a temple in a sequence that looks like a very badly CG-rendered version of a heavy metal video with some Muppets. The main thing is he is still pining for Jane, a character we all forgot about some time ago, is now battling against stage four cancer, but who, thanks to a convoluted plot twist inspired by Jason Aaron's Mighty Thor uh, strips, finds herself united with Thor's reconstructed hammer, which is sworn to protect her and which reconstructs itself in her presence, thereby turning her into... Mighty Thor, who's a female version of Thor. You've seen the film. Tell me if this is wrong. Yeah. A female version of Thor, whilst Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, misses both her and the hammer, who is with her, yes. but has now been replaced by his axe, Stormbreaker. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it's not that confusing. Here's a clip. So that's the ex-girlfriend, is it? The old ex-girlfriend. Judy Foster. Jane Foster. The one that got away. The one that got away. That means escaped. Yeah. Yeah. Must be hard for you to see your ex-girlfriend and your ex-hammer hanging out and getting on so well. What you up to, bro? Come to daddy. Come on. Come on hey, there you are. Hey. No, I was just calling you. Another visual yeah. clip. Another visual clip. So the gag is he's calling the hammer and then his axe comes up. You see, his axe is like an ex. His axe is his ex. His, well, yeah. No, no, his axe, is, his axe is jealous of his ex. That, incidentally, is a gag that will run throughout the whole film. Thor treating his hammer like his old girlfriend and his axe like his new girlfriend. 
And that's basically the tone of the whole movie, the kind of, you know, knowing jokes about, hey, we're making a superhero movie, but we know we're doing it. So, you know, we're making lots of jokes about it. Therefore, you know, got characters dressed as gods, but they talk like they're in an episode of Friends because we're very, very postmodern. And then the plot is that the children of New Asgard are stolen by Gore, who incidentally looks exactly like the nun from the Nunjuring movies. So from now on, it's going to be quiet, quiet, quiet. Bail! I thought he, he looked uh, like Voldemort. Really. A little bit of Ray Fiennes, that's what he looked like. Okay, so somewhere between the Nunjuring and Voldemort. But not, ooh, that's an interestingly new creation. And then in true uh, Doctor Who fashion, uh, he, he, the God Butcher, he's got to get to the gates of all eternity <clears throat> where he can make one wish that will be the wishiest wish that every, anyone ever wished. Incidentally, he, he just wish, I wish I was omnipotent and had endless wishes. Anyway, so Thor then... Announces that he says, he said, I'm going to get together a top, 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 top notch team, top, top. And he says it like that in a way that sounds exactly like Boris Johnson. We're recording this on a Wednesday. I have no idea how that joke lands, but he, that's what he sounds that, like. That's true. There is that general feeling that he's there at the moment, but by the time you get this, he might not be. Maybe not be. Anyway, they head off into, a, into space in a fairground ride boat, which is pulled by screaming goats, comedy screaming goats. Because, hey, kids, internet memes about screaming goats are cool. Even I thought, hang on a minute, that's past its tell-by date. There are rubbish jokes about beatboxes, rollerblading, catchphrases, catchphrases. <clears throat> the joke about, oh, we're superheroes, got to have catchphrases. Oh, you know, eat my hammer. Will that work? You know. <sighs> then there's loads and loads of smugly knowing cameos from Matt Damon, Sam Neill, Melissa McCarthy as bad actors in the new, new Asgard theme park history of Thor. Then there's a comedy sequence, an extended comedy sequence in some secret god lair where Russell Crowe turns up as Zeus doing what I think is meant to be a Greek accent. I thought it was Italian. Sorry, that's, I think is Well, I, Zeus is Greek, right? I know, but it, he might have spent fine, some time. But he sounds like Jared Leto. Oh, okay. He sounds like Jared Leto. He goes, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Zeus. I got a thing with the blah, blah, blah. And then there's a joke about women fainting at the sight of Chris Hemsworth, Mr. Happy. The CGI is unspeakably poor. It, the whole thing looked like it was, it would probably improve from motion smoothing. Um, it was, at, at times I was reminded, there was an article in Cine Fantastique magazine back in 1974, 75, that described Flesh Gordon, the uh, soft porn remake of Flash Gordon, as the best mounted turd we have ever seen. And I thought that bits of Thor Love and Thunder looked like a rubbish CG remake of those bits from Flesh Gordon. Now, look, here's my problem. It's one thing for the Marvel audience to get bored with the Marvel Universe. It is quite another thing when the makers themselves don't seem to care about it either. I mean, yes, there are LGBTQ plus friendly subplots. So what? That should be a minimum requirement. That is not a reason to exist or a badge of merit. Also, the unearned sentimentality about illness and then a completely fatuous thing about, you know, love trumping vengeance. Also, existing in a world in which everyone makes a big deal about sacrifice, but sacrifice doesn't mean anything when the character will reappear very, very shortly. I thought the whole thing was soul-suckingly wrong. I mean, you know, I love Hunt for the Wilder People. I kind of enjoyed Thor Ragnarok. This proves that my concerns about Jojo Rabbit being wildly overrated were, were it correct. Doesn't, it doesn't prove that. One thing that I thought was interesting, there's a joke in which Jane is explaining astrophysics 
And she makes a joke about Interstellar. But before that, she says, did you see Event Horizon? I thought, well, great. At least somebody has noticed that Event Horizon was the precursor to Interstellar. Other than that, I thought it was absolute balderdash. And I really sat there thinking, I've had enough of this now. I have re- This is so tired and so... W- if you're going to do it, do it. Don't just do two hours of sarky, oh, not be making a superhero movie, but be being funny about it. <laughs> it just stop, stop. It, I thought it was, I thought it was absolute rubbish. The just only thing, the stop only thing, this nonsense. The only thing I would agree with you on is that kind of line about: Are, are you saying that you're bored? with what you've created that there I that I agree with that thing really you're taking the mickey out this thing which I thought we were supposed to be taking seriously yeah. and I do get that but I thought it was laugh out loud funny Did I think you? Taika Waititi's is Did is you think excellent. it was laugh out loud yes. funny? Yes. yes. Do you I think did. the jokes about catchphrases were not incredibly yeah. no, tired? I didn't laugh the screaming I'm not saying goats. It, I'm not saying it's great. What did you laugh out loud about? I'm not This isn't an inquisition I'm just saying I enjoyed it. When did you laugh out loud? Give me a joke that made you laugh out loud. Remember, I can't remember. You can't remember because it didn't Mark, happen. Mark, <clears throat> I'm telling you, I laughed out loud a number of times. I enjoyed it the way James King and a bunch of other people enjoyed it. Yeah, we, you didn't, and that's fine. I also like Jojo Rabbit, and I think Taika Waititi is. is I've liked Taika Waititi very much in the past. I think this is absolutely. I, I, the more I think about it, the more angry it makes me. I think it's terrible. I think it's genuinely, properly terrible. Um, so. We could do uh, a spoil everything episode next week once you've seen Thor: Love and Thunder, or you could not see Thor: Love and Thunder. Well, you no, can all go and see Brian and Charles and make no, the world a better place. Because we're not discussing that on the spoil everything feature. So, Thor: Love and Thunder, go see it. Tell us about it next week, and we'll put it in a, a spoiler packed section. Although I think you've spoiled most of it. Yes, another film uh, in a universe where nobody ever does anything of any consequence because there are so many reset buttons. I mean, at the beginning... And that's the end of the programme. Uh, sorry, management what, is, it, what, is this Guardians of the Galaxy? All round what, stuff which universe Lily are we Hamley. in? Cameras by Teddy Riley. Videos on our Tip Top YouTube channel by Ryan O'Meara. Johnny Socials was Jonathan Imieri. Studio, en- Studio Engineer Studio. was Josh. <laughs> Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer. Hannah Talbot is the producer. And the redactor was Simon Paul turned up this week Mark what is your film of the week Brian and Charles we'll be back next week Uh, take two we'll be with you on Monday 